Good morning. As you can see, David and I have switched places this morning. He gets to be with all the crazies. And they have a fun lesson plan in there. But today, I would like to welcome you to Rockbridge. If you're new here, my name is Joy, and I'm the family ministry director here. And Pastor David is the one who was doing the children's moment up here. If you're not, uh, if you get a chance afterwards, come say hi. I'd love to meet you. This is Christmas, and the season is beautiful and bright, and we've been exploring the wonder of Christmas. And I'm so excited to dive into that next step this morning. The first week of Advent, we talked about the wonder of the star and how the Magi came and sought the Lord. And then last week, David shared about the wonder of a name. And it was really fun to hear everybody's name meanings. We got to kind of um, get to know each other a little bit more through exploring what our names mean. And that was really neat because names are really important, right? When you're naming your children, especially, I know, I've spent hours and hours and hours thinking about names for kids, because I have five, so it takes a while, and to make them all coordinate, and the meanings are really important and special, and as we prepare for that new life that's coming into the world, we think about these things, we think about what they're going to be, who they're going to be, who they're going to become, and it matters when we give a name. Not only do we need to name them, but there's also lots of other preparations that take place when we're getting ready for a child, right? We have nine months or so, sometimes longer, depending on your plan, but there's so many decisions to make when we're preparing for a child to come into the world. We have to think about where they're going to stay. Is our house big enough? Do they have a place to sleep? If they have brothers and uh, sisters, where are they going to go when we go to the hospital? You know, who's going to deliver them? What's the doctor going to do? All of these choices that we make in glorious expectation as we prepare for a child to come into the world. Now I think about the story of the manger, because today we're going to take a look at Mary and Joseph and the divine master plan that the Creator put together in order for the Savior to be born. And I bet, even though centuries ago, maybe they didn't have an entire industry dedicated to baby products like they do today, there probably was still a big deal made about somebody having a baby. There probably still was this whole community that comes together in great expectation and preparation. So today, when we look at the passage of Scripture, I want you to think about what it would have been like to be there with Mary and with Joseph in the circumstance that they have been given. Because today, even, we have stigmas, right? When people have children outside of what would be considered the normal situation. And Mary and Joseph experienced that kind of like tenfold, right? Their seemingly scandalous virgin conception... Then not only that, they had to travel 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to go be registered for the census that was mandated by Caesar Augustus, who basically thought he was a god and could tell the whole world what to do. And this created a movement among the entire region that everybody had to get up and go follow. So we're going to take a look at this passage, and I want you to think about the reality of what was going on here. Because at first glance, we might think of the manger being just a simple part of the story. But I believe that it was a divine plan, beginning with thousands of years of preparation. And it wasn't some last minute, oops, we forgot the pack and play. Did you pack it? No, I didn't. (laughs) This was on purpose, and it was with intention. Let's take a look. In Luke chapter 2, 
we hear the story that's so familiar. We hear it in pageants and Christmas you know, readings all the time. But it says this, And it came to pass that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the the house and the line of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn." This is a pretty short version of this story that we hear, right? It's a familiar passage, and it conjures up images of the familiar nativity scene and the sweet little gold-laden, halo-wearing baby Jesus and the Virgin Mary just looking so beautiful and Joseph there standing by her side. But that's not really what the scripture says here. The, the Latin word for manger actually comes from the word that means to chew or to eat. So the reality isn't that there's this clean little bed of hay, which this is beautiful, by the way, but this is, you know, it's not slobbery, it's not dirty, it's not realistically what we were probably, uh, they were probably experiencing. In reality, the manger was an animal feeding trough. And when I planned for my babies to be in the hospital or at home with me, I did not plan to stick them in an animal feeding trough. So why a manger? I bet that a manger wasn't the first choice in any culture, I would venture to say. But God had centuries to prepare for this birth, right? He designed it to fulfill all of the prophecies and that were foretold about the Messiah coming. And just like the song that we sang, there was great expectation. They were searching, they were longing, they were hoping, they were waiting for this Messiah for years and years and years. And so... I think we need to get some context from what would have been familiar um, knowledge in the community that experienced this miracle. Okay, so the Jewish community would have been pretty familiar with the, with the Old Testament books, with the prophecies. So let's go back. We're going to take a look at Micah. Micah was a prophet who lived uh, over 700 years before the birth of Christ, and he prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among thousands of Judea, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who shall be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Now that in itself might be difficult to kind of understand or unpack, but if you look at the whole context of Micah, you understand that he's talking about the Messiah, and he's talking about the birth of this Messiah, and that it's going to come out of Bethlehem which is also very significant because Bethlehem wasn't a land of great uh, importance or riches or a giant palace, which you would expect a new king to be born into. So it was out of the ordinary as far as expectation for the king of kings would go as well. There's also a lot of prophecy in the book of Isaiah. There are several prophecies that talk about him being born of a certain lineage, the house and line of David, being born of a virgin, being born of divine nature, that he would be God's son, and also talks about his very humble beginnings. In Isaiah 53, there is a big chunk that speaks about the Christ, about his childhood, his foundational, his roots, and what his life looks like. 
In 53.2, Isaiah says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, or appearance that we should be attracted to him. This idea of a, of a shoot out of dry ground, what that is basically giving is this, I, this image of there's nothing there before, there's no grand lineage, there's no royal priesthood that he is walking into this family um, that's already established and um, you know, wealthy and ready to receive this king. This is pretty lowly here. So this dry ground, this shoot of a root, but out of it comes something glorious. He's not good-looking, and he's not something that we'd normally be attracted to. So this is also culturally against what would be considered normal for a king, right? We would expect a king to be born into a family of uh, great respect. Mary and Joseph, they were kind of regular people. We would expect a king to be born into wealth. That's obviously not the case. We would expect a king to be, have experiences that were... Um, really not controversial like the situation is presenting. He'd be dressed in fine linen, adorned, uh, you know, handsome, esteemed, and respected in his community automatically. But that's not the picture that we get. Instead, we have the king of kings beginning with a controversial birth, a stinky delivery room, and a manger, an animal trough for his bed. Well, this would set the stage for the rest of Jesus' life. If you read through the rest of Isaiah 53, it paints the picture of the Messiah. It talks about how he came for us and he would suffer and he would die and he would undeservedly experience all of these pain and troubles. And it gives us the reason. He says in verse 6, <clears throat> That we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is the lowest of low. So this Messiah who came perfect and righteous and sinless, not only did he start in a slobbery bed, but he takes on the weight of the iniquity, which means sin, of the whole world. It doesn't get much lower than that. He takes on our sin, and he ends up on the cross, suffering and dying for things that he did not do. But the outcome is glorious, right? We know the story. The outcome is salvation for all. There's this glorious resurrection, there's the ascension into heaven. There's the anointing of the Holy Spirit where he comes down on the disciples and he says, go and tell the world this good news. And it spreads throughout the whole world that the Messiah has come and that the Savior has paid the price and now we don't have to be trapped and responsible for our sin forever anymore because he gives us the eternity that we have been hoping for. And it's beautiful and it's glorious and it's incredibly detailed and filled with purpose, but it's not what is expected. I believe that God purposed to send the Messiah this way for a few reasons. One, it makes him very relatable and accessible to all. 
I know in about every culture, there's this hierarchy of people, right? There's people who are considered low or middle or, or upper. And it's really interesting to see how that has played out in centu- over centuries in every civilization. There's always levels, right? Well, Jesus comes essentially at the lowest level, but is accessible for all. He is at the lowest level, but he is also a king. What is that? He creates this paradox that enables him to meet every single person on the planet where they're at. And this is incredible, this design that God had. So God is also God, and he could have set it up very simply, right? He could have fulfilled the prophecy by having him born in Bethlehem to a good, you know, righteous woman and an established man, or even born in a palace, but he chooses a stable and a manger and a place of humility, And I know I've delivered a lot of babies, but in hospitals, right? In a sterile environment with plenty of hands on deck to help figure everything out in case something goes wrong. I can't imagine what Mary was going through sitting there in a cave or a a stable or a barn or whatever it was (laughs) trying to bring forth her first child, right? Which is the most anxiety-ridden typically, except for me, it was the twins. But there's so much to consider. What was she going through? I have no idea because scripture doesn't really explain But I bet she didn't have that, like, holy mother of God look on her face the whole time. (laughs) I wouldn't. The manger wasn't an accident. And Mary was amazing, right? Whether or not she endured it gritting her teeth or was joyous and praiseworthy the whole time, it was intentional. And it was also a sign. Let's look back at the scripture. Next, further in Luke 2, we're starting in verse 8. He tells of the great birth announcement, okay? It says, In the same region, there were some shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel calms them down and says, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. Today, in the city of David, a Savior is born, and he is Christ the Lord. This is the Messiah you've been looking for. And he says something really important here. He says, This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and laying in a manger. Now, it would have been pretty common to find a baby swaddled up. In fact, we still do that today, right? That's not the sign. The sign is you will find a baby lying in a manger. Excuse me? This would have been different. This would have been unique. This would have been something that would stand out. And so God uses this manger not only as a, as a very obvious sign of humility, but also as a sign of certainty so that you will know for sure that this is the king that you're looking for. Talk about an incredible birth announcement. I think he, God's got that one trumped for any like little cutesy thing I've seen sent out. And the shepherds start freaking out. But once they calm down, they stand up and they go. And they try to find this baby. And they follow that sign and they worship him. Because they believe the word of God that the angel said. And it's glorious. And it's humble. But it's glorious. In fact, the angel starts singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. And we've done a really good job of creating the environment at Christmas time and singing about these things. But I think a lot of times we sing about them kind of in 
um, repetition or tradition, but we don't really like soak up what we're saying. And in this manger, you know, I'm reminded of the familiar song, Away in a Manger. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. Let's just stop right there. The Lord in a manger. That's incredible. That is powerful. That is unique. And that is a sign. The second verse kind of makes me laugh. I'll be honest. It says the cattle are lowing, which means they're making noise. And the baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Come on. Okay, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But the next verse really speaks to my heart. He says, it says, Be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask thee to stay. Close by me forever and love me, I pray. This is why he came. And this is what he did. He came to be with us. He came to love us and to stay close by us forever. And the last part of the song, I just love it. It says, bless all the dear children in thy tender care and take us to heaven to live with thee there. This is the glorious reward. When we receive the gift that Jesus gave us from the manger to be glorified with him forever in eternity, this is incredible and it is such a beautiful thing. So I don't want to come to this season of Advent and sing these songs and, you know, sing happy birthday to Jesus and, and love on our family and just, but miss it. But miss that this was the beginning of our chance for eternity. And it was a giant master plan put together by the master orchestrator of all plans to fulfill his ultimate will. May he remind you of the beautiful thing that he has given through the birth of Jesus, sending a humble Savior from a manger to glory that we may live in eternity with him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. <laughs>